Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. There are very few moments in the life of a university where an event overtakes the local and national narrative about who and what your campus represents. When the news broke in 2010 of an academic scandal on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill involving first the football team, few knew that the issue would eventually expand and include over 3,100 students and student athletes taking 200 different classes offered by the African and Afro-American Studies Department that were not legitimate academic courses. Among many other outcomes, UNC Chapel Hill was put on probation by the Regional Accreditation Association, the Southern Association of Colleges and Universities. Several years later, both the NCAA and the SACS deferred on whether to hold the institution in violation of their bylaws, saving UNC's accreditation. My guest today is Holden Thorpe. He was the 10th chancellor at UNC Chapel Hill from 2008 to 2013. Currently, he is the editor-in-chief of the Science Family of Journals, and he has been since 2019. He came to science from Washington University, where he was provost from Division Three, excuse me, from 2013 to 2019, and where he is the Rita Levy Montalcini Distinguished University Professor and he holds appointments in both chemistry and medicine. He is a venture partner at Hatteras Venture Partners, a consultant to Ancora, and is on the board of directors of PBS, the College Advising Corps, and Artisan Biosciences. He talks with me frankly about what president trustees should know about college athletics. This is one of the most eye-opening conversations we've had on this podcast. Holden, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Karen. It's great to be with you. You and I connected after I heard your conversation with WRAL Radio in Raleigh last month. You on, your honesty kind of blew me away, actually. And as you articulated exactly what I've seen in the 10 years I have been teaching senior campus leaders about what they need to know and maybe don't know about college athletics, especially if they want to become a college president. One comment in particular really stood out. I'm going to ask you to repeat that comment. Go ahead. Sure. Here we go. So the thing that I've been pretty consistent about ever since I left Carolina is you have this weird setup where most of us, if they're like me, they're the last guy picked in kickball. And I certainly wasn't qualified to run a huge athletics enterprise. But most of the presidents are really not free to delegate that in the way that they would like. Because on the one hand, you've got a huge chunk of the board who got on the board, mainly because they wanted to be involved in athletics. And then on the other side, you have the Knight Commission saying the presidents are the ones who need to be responsible for maintaining the integrity of the whole thing. Well, those are two diametrically opposed messages. And so when these things come up, what happens is, imagine a whole bunch of college presidents sitting in a classroom and none of them did their homework. And the teacher is calling on them, and they're all looking at their paper, hoping they're not the ones to get called on. They're basically just hoping they don't have their time in the spotlight with one of these things. And they're supposed to be doing a lot of other stuff. So handing them this very, very high profile thing that they're not prepared to deal with is really a challenge. 
It is. And this comment is, is such important context as we seek the training for future college leaders, because as I'm sure you're aware, we've had a lot of turnover in the presidential offices across the country, pandemic related, other related, that type of thing. But let me drill down a little bit on this. In the late 1990s, the NCAA redirected the accountability of the program to the president and in 2018 required that each president annually sign an attestation that there are no known NCAA violations on their campus and that the president will cooperate fully with any subsequent investigations. Who then should be ultimately accountable for the ethical behaviors and compliance of athletics on campus? Uh, well, the president should be the one who's accountable, although it should be enthusiastically delegated to the athletic director. And so when there's a uh, problem, the, the president should, if everything's working well, simply approve the recommendation from the athletic director. The problem is that uh, the governing boards and the alumni disagree with uh, sometimes what is even the athletics department thinks they should do. Um, and certainly with uh, what a lot of the faculty and staff would think would be important. And so uh, this, this sets up a, a really tough situation. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about what I went through is, you know, if you were to dig around on the internet and look at what the, the Tar Heel uh, message board guys and, and hardcore fans say, would say about the way we handled the situation we're in, they'll criticize me for cooperating too much with the NCAA, even though, as you just pointed out, I signed something every year saying I would cooperate with the NCAA. Um, and uh, I naively thought that was what I was supposed to do. Now, as it turns out, uh, most, many schools do stonewall the NCAA when they get in trouble. We did cooperate with them more than others, but we were complying precisely with this uh, attestation that we had signed. And, you know, that's a great way to read out this, this whole problem. You know, when you took over the presidency in 2008, you'd come out of the science, you were a chemist by training, but you also came up through uh, the UNC Chapel Hill um, culture, and there was much, there's been much made of the words, the Carolina way. How does the Carolina way ideal come into this situation? Well, it figured prominently in the, uh, everything that went down at UNC. And it's very complicated because the Carolina way was most associated with Dean Smith, who is a legend and maybe even deity in, in, uh, in Chapel Hill. Um, because he was somebody, not only um, did he win a lot of games, but he also was someone whose liberal politics actually matched with the faculty, which is not always the case uh, with competitive college coaches and their politics. So Dean Smith was not only uh, worshipped by, by Tar Heel Nation, but there, were also, there was also a huge chunk of faculty who felt, and correctly so, that Dean Smith was a, 
uh, an important leader um, in you know the early days of of civil rights and integration and and all of all of that. He was. Um, so it was very hard to say that Dean Smith did anything wrong. Um, and to impeach the idea of the Carolina way is basically to, to uh, impeach Dean Smith. Um, now, this idea of the Carolina way was that there was some magical way in which the University of North Carolina won all these games without making all the same compromises that at that time, most people attributed to SEC schools. Uh, now, you know, thankfully, there's a better realization that most of these problems are everywhere. But it was very common for to hear, yeah, we win, but we're not like Alabama. We're not like Auburn. Um, that's very much in the Carolina way uh, idea. And um, what that meant in addition to the fact that that's wrong because Carolina was cutting corners right and left just like everybody else um, for 20 or 30 years. Um, but it also becomes an excuse for looking the other way uh, for the compliance staff and lots of people uh, who love athletics. Oh yeah, well, we don't have to worry about this because it's the, you know, we're following the Carolina way. So my advice to uh, anyone who becomes a college president is if, if you start hearing that your school has a way, tell everybody we're not going to have a way <laughs> because <laughs> once you start saying we're doing this because it's the Princeton way or it's the Evergreen State way or whatever it is, then that's an excuse for all kinds of things that can go wrong. And the most important thing about all of this is for everybody to have their eyes open about what's really going on. And the, and the, the way concept uh, is, is a great way to close everybody's eyes. And I... so what happened was when Carolina got in trouble, well, and the other thing is I was raised on the Carolina way. Uh, my parents went to UNC, so did my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And uh, I grew up watching Carolina basketball, I idolized um, all the players in the seventies and I memorized all the statistics and all that stuff. And I had bought this whole thing hook, line and sinker. So even though, you know, as a new president, I was gradually waking up to what the problems were. Um, I, I wasn't, um, I was, I wasn't all the way there, uh, as fast as I needed to. And the problem, the other problem is when you have this, so it's very common at a school like Carolina to hear people say, we wanna be Harvard Monday through Friday and Alabama on Saturday. <laughs> okay, this is a terrible expression. If you hear anybody at your school say that, shut them down right away because it's impossible to do that. Yeah. All right, you cannot be Harvard five days a week and Alabama on Saturday, okay? You've got to be your university seven days a week. Yeah. And uh, that is another rationalization. Um, and so what, happens, what happened at, at UNC that made this so hard was, you know, there were hardcore message board guys who didn't care if we cheated and, and, and trustees too. Like when the fake classes came along, they wanted me to figure out how to keep them going. 
Um, and there were people on the other side who hated athletics and always hated it and wanted to get rid of it. But there was this vast group in the middle that had been given this intoxicating drug that allowed them to enjoy watching winning the games without having to face up to the fact that Carolina cheated just like everybody else. And the five stages of grief for those people who had spent their lifetime, including me, uh, thinking that they could enjoy athletics without having to face up to all the hypocrisy uh, was very traumatizing. When you interviewed for the chancellor position, did athletics even come up in the interview? I mean, were there any concerns that you had or others had about the program at that time? No, because everybody had drunk this Kool-Aid. And so, um, yeah, there was, I think the second interview, they asked me about um, athletics. And um, what I told them by that point, I've been around enough and I'd gotten, um, I'd gotten closer to some of the uh, non-revenue sports, particularly women's basketball. Sylvia Hatchell and I were always extremely close. And, um, and baseball, um, the, Mike Fox, who's a Hall of Fame baseball coach, had coached at North Carolina Wesleyan where my aunt was a famous art history professor. So I knew Mike and, and Sylvia well, and I told everybody, you know, we need to really focus on uh, the non-revenue sports. And then I told some heart-tugging story about some Carolina basketball team from the 70s that was important to me. And everybody started, you know, was choking back tears. And that was the end of it. Yes. Oh. Okay. Because wow. I mean, I, I did know what to say in the interview to get the job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. But but no, nobody ever said, because, I mean, when, when the NCAA called us, it was the first time in 50 years. So people were just lulled into this sense of, of complacency that uh, is just stunning. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can relate to that. When I was an associate athletics director at the University of Minnesota, I came in as part of the cleanup crew from the largest academic fraud scandal at that time with yes. 450 uh, term papers being written for men's basketball players and others by an academic advisor assistant. And uh, it was devastating. It really turned the, uh, the department for a while into uh, I don't trust anybody's own. Nobody trusts anybody in the department. So you don't want that either. So it's trying to find this balance of, of trying to be educational, but also to say, okay, if we've screwed up, we've got to report it, right? Yeah. So I, of course I studied that case in depth. So <laughs> thank you. I'm, I feel for you straightening it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was not easy. No. Not easy. Um, when you left Carolina, you moved over to Washington University, which is a very highly ranked, very highly thought of Division III institution as its provost, and also you hold an endowed chair. What are your observations comparing the experience that D3 athletes have as compared to D1? Yeah, well, first, the, the experience the administrators have, it's a whole lot easier. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I got there, we had a problem with a coach. We let them go. It never even got on. And I was like talking to our PR people and they're like, why are you calling me? What do you, you know? Um, yeah, we changed, we changed the coach out and never even got on TV. Wow. Um, so it's, uh, it's, and uh, it's enjoyable to, to watch the students compete. There are problems, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the students to win. 
and they also have to do everything academically that everybody else is doing. So a lot of the problems you have with stress on college students can, can be there for uh, the student athletes for sure. Um, it's a great experience, I think, to be a, a D3 athlete. Um, it's still very, very challenging to do. Um, but I, I, you know, I had good relationships with lots of student athletes. It was fun. The, the venues at WashU looked like uh, high school mm. athletics venues, you know, a big, big, like a, a high school in, in Texas or <laughs> something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first time I walked into a basketball game, I looked around, I said, where's the, where are the police? And somebody just started laughing at me like, what, why would we need police uh, at a basketball game? Um, so, you know, it's very enjoyable. Uh, I traveled with the team occasionally in the postseason. WashU wins about as much as in D3 as UNC does in D1. They're both up there in the Director's Cup every year. Uh, we, the, the, the athletic director retired, um, and then the next one left to Illinois, go to Illinois. The first time a D3 athletic director went to D1 I told taught him as much as I could I thought I had longer but he only made it a year and a half before he went home but he's he's survived now a pretty good while um and the next guy we hired was also fantastic so I really enjoyed working on athletics all the bumps and bruises and lessons I learned were valuable um but you know obviously we never had anything that it, it, it would have been impossible for athletics to take over the university like it can at, in the power five. Yeah, makes sense. So here we are in a moment where division one is, is allegedly rewriting their constitution. And the question is on the table, should D1 reinvent itself? If so, how? And my thoughts are, should it, part of it be a commercial endeavor? Should certain sports have the opportunity to collectively bargain what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, the of course it's it's follow the money <laughs> is the most important thing. So uh, if the students, if the athletes um, are going to be employees or something, then you have then the whole question of the tax exemption comes into play. So what you have right now is a bunch of people in denial about what's fair or pretending like it is fair, simply so that they can keep intercollegiate athletics nonprofit and not have to pay UBIT on it. Yeah. Uh, if you have to pay the UBIT, then the financial model changes significantly. So that's what all the gyrations are about. They've never been about anything other than that. And uh, unrelated business income taxes is UBIT. And that percentage, my understanding, could be 30 to 40% of the, of the profits. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Because, yeah. because for example, now, you know, when somebody buys uh, tickets to the Michigan big house on the 50 yard line, they make a very, very large donation in quotes to the Michigan athletics department. And then a very small portion of that is treated as the cost of the tickets. But the truth is you couldn't get those seats unless you gave that whole thing. Yeah. And so if, if, uh, if the tax exemption goes away, 
then that's not a charitable gift. And that costs everybody a lot of money. So that's why we've always had this problem with, you know, undercompensating the athletes. You know, I'm, I'm in favor of doing anything we can. So I like, I, I was for the cost of attendance when it first started. I was actually on the committee that recommended the uh, first round of cost of attendance. Uh, I'm for name, image, and likeness. Yeah, it creates all kinds of problems for, for the athletic directors to manage. That's their job. So go figure it out, guys. Um, the last thing we wanna do is, um, is continue to exploit these athletes. And of course we should make them employees. They are employees. Now, how you get there is, uh, is another matter. I, I, it's, it's a complicated problem of tax law and, um, and many other things. Um, but you know, it's unsustainable. We're obviously moving in the direction of better and better compensation for the athletes. We've gone from cost of attendance to name, image, and likeness. It's, that's not going to turn around. So that's going to keep going. And the people who are working in intercollegiate athletics, they need to be working on, on how they're going to sort all this out. It's, I'm not saying it's not a complicated problem, but uh, we, need to, we need to treat the athletes better. And there's just a massive disconnect between the people who are doing all the work and the people who are collecting the money. Hmm. Um, do you feel that way across all Division I programs, all Division I sports, or do you draw a line somewhere? Oh, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, I certainly feel that way about Power Five. And I guess, I, I guess if you want to compete in the NCAA basketball tournament where the NCAA is collecting a billion dollars or whatever it is, then you owe those players who are entertaining folks in the basketball tournament, they deserve some compensation for that. So, yeah, but I, but it's not the same thing as Alabama get, you know, playing basically enabling all of college football. So, so right. let me just take it one step further. So let's take a couple Cinderella's UMBC or yeah. like Chicago makes a magical run through the tournament. Do you see those athletes then getting a, like a, a salary or a bonus through every round? And what happens to the conference that they came from? Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't, that's, you know, obviously that's very complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly, I mean, I love both of those schools immensely, especially UMBC, I think. Freeman Hrabowski is yeah. the goat and um, that's the greatest place in the world. That's why so, I picked <laughs> Yeah, so I was, I was happy to, um, I was happy when they were making their run. I don't know, you probably should ask the people who run those schools yeah. that question. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. You watch how much it means to be your conference champion and to make the automatic qualifier and then the dreams just explode. And yeah. I wonder, you know, if you do end up paying everybody who wants a chance at March Madness, what, you know, what, how that would upend the tournament. It's right. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. Um, there have been scholars who have suggested that we should have two divisions in Division One. We, we actually have like three or four, but we'll just say two, a commercial division and an educational division. What are your thoughts on that idea? Well, I mean, that's obviously what's going to have to happen, because if you the more this gets commercialized, the more separation there's going to be between the power five schools and uh, 
the basketball schools and the ones who who never win their conference tournament even in basketball so that'll sort itself out somehow because as because there are schools at the top that can float uh even though they don't want to they could absorb a lot of these changes in their revenue and i mean i think they're probably even some power five schools who would have to drop down depending on where this goes you know um they wouldn't like to hear this, but you know the Wake Forests and the Vandies and places like that. Um, you know they have a lot of passionate fans, but um, if it turns out to be a huge cost, you know how are they going to manage that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I felt that working at the University of Minnesota and others at Indiana University and University of Illinois, they're not quite in that top tier of the top big right. ten, which really separates even within the conference. So I know exactly what you're, yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Feels to me like moving to or staying in Division One is a credential sought out by presidents, like an R1 designation or a top 10 ranking in a certain field. Is this why people are moving like Bellarmine moved from Division Two to Division One? Other schools, University of Southern Indiana just announced they're going to move from Division Two to Division One. What are your thoughts on that? I think they're making a big mistake. Um, occasionally, I would get WashU alumni coming to me and saying, "You know, we have to move WashU to Division One." These people have <laughs> zero idea how much money that would take and and how unrealistic it would be to uh, recruit um, competitive athletes into the WashU academic environment. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, I get why people do it. They want the TV coverage and they want their name out there more. And they want, uh, you know, what Texas and the University of North Carolina have, the world's most distinctive colors um, that sell t-shirts but the trade-off uh of the amount of attention that the administration has to put in doing that and the amount of money that it costs that could be used for other things to me that doesn't compute uh i tried to talk phil dubois out of starting football at charlotte as we were sitting next to each other at the chancellor's meetings every month and I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What do you want to end up like me? Um, and, uh, you know, he pressed on. And I guess Charlotte's, I mean, I don't know. You'd have to ask him whether he's happy about that. I guess Georgia State has had some success starting football. Um, but, boy, that's a lot. That's awfully big distraction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, if, the if the point of these places is to create and distribute knowledge, it's not clear to me how that's helping you do it. I get that the places that are doing it on a big scale have a hard time going backwards. But the ones who are going the other direction, <laughs> I'm not sure why they're doing that. I hope, I hope it makes sense. I feel like the schools that have, you know, recently announced they're moving from D2 to D1, that president gets a real great bump. Oh, we're so excited. This means we're bigger, we're better. But then it's the next president and the next president who has to deal with the reality of trying to maintain competitive, competitiveness in that division. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of college presidents, this is one of the reasons why I got out, are always just doing stuff to get themselves to the next job rather than actually taking care of these places. And there's a lot of pressure 
for them to do that from the lawmakers and the governing boards. And it's very, very hard to be a college president whose goal is actually just to take care of everybody on your campus. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's a that that's actually to me the the hardest part about what your listeners have signed up to do because you have students in distress and faculty need help and all these things that you need to be pastorally administering to and you've got a governing board that's always trying to put gold stars on the wall yeah yeah it's a great point eric Barron, the outgoing president at penn state just told the philadelphia inquirer that you know his two biggest concerns were racial justice issues and freedom of speech. And yet that's not what anybody really wants to talk about. They wanna talk about what's Penn State football gonna do this year. Yep, or you know, <clears throat> how, do they, how often do they get positive press in the media compared to, to Pitt? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. okay, exactly. which is basically irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. At one point it mattered, but yeah. not so much now. All right, so you mentioned the, the wannabe presidents and the soon-to-be presidents and those who are currently in the presidency listening to this conversation. Um, oftentimes, I've noticed in career paths that people often work at large institutions and then they accept presidencies often at smaller institutions. Mm -hmm. That's a natural path. How should they navigate this, this process? That's exactly what you did when you went from UNC Chapel Hill to Wash U. How do you navigate the, the values of that system? You mean the 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 wisdom of doing what yeah. I did? No, no, I, think I made I made one of the most sensible moves in the history yeah. of higher education. Yeah, no, no, I, and I think a lot of people understand that. But I see right. a lot of like deans in Division One schools going to become D three presidents. Oh yeah. So how do they navigate that change in athletic philosophy? Well, that's the easier way to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're they're going to be look. What the first time I walked into uh, the Washu basketball venue, I was choking back tears because when you compare that to the Dean E. Smith Center, <laughs> um, it just, it just feels like, okay, I'm, I, I'm home now. I can watch these kids play basketball and I can make sure their coach does a good job and, uh, all the things that I'm supposed to do to take care, to take care of them, um, without having to deal with, security and parking and the TV and all that, all that stuff. Um, so I think if you're a D1 dean going to a D3 presidency, welcome home. That's all I have to say about it. If you're going the other way, then um, you really need to listen to this podcast and, and, and uh, study all the materials that you've put together because uh, as Tina Turner says, Welcome to Thunderdome. <laughs> well, Holden, you've been a font of information, uh, wisdom, uh, advice, and uh, perspective. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Sure. It's been great talking to you, Karen. Thanks for all you're doing. These, these leaders really need your help with this very, very challenging and important topic. Thank you very much.